This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Worst case scenario, the entire law enforcement apparatus may be being used in an attempt to buttress this president's deep state theories. And, and quite frankly, that's the stuff that smacks of, you know, banana republics. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law, the courts, the Supreme Court, and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the law for Slate. And this is a special bonus edition of the podcast to try to help us understand the House Intelligence Committee, which is doing work that is kind of adjacent to what we often talk about on this show, but not always squarely in it. For two years now, I've been parroting the language of Adam Schiff and saying that the Mueller report had its genesis as a counterintelligence probe. But the truth is, I have no idea what that really meant. And so this week, as the House of Representatives moves forward with formalizing the impeachment inquiry with a vote, I wanted to unpack a part of the impeachment parcel we haven't ever fully unwrapped on this show. That is the intelligence piece. The Intelligence Committee deals with, well, some spy stuff, with what we know about foreign countries, what they know about us. And while that has a thousand pointillist connections to the Mueller report and the law stuff, the things we talk about on this show, I am very aware that we aren't always speaking about the same things. And because so much of what has unspooled in the impeachment context has to do with intelligence in the Intelligence Committee, and because I am Intelligence Committee curious, but not well-read, I've invited my friend Jim Himes on the show to help understand what I don't actually understand. Jim Himes represents Connecticut's 4th District in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he's serving his sixth term. He serves on several committees, including the Select Committee on Intelligence, and that is important because he's become kind of my go-to guy when it comes to fitting domestic legal questions into questions that are larger geopolitical and spy-related. So with all that, Jim Himes, welcome to Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia. And and is it correct for what I just said, which is shorthanding all of the things I said in my intro, maybe farcically saying that judiciary does law stuff and you do spy stuff? Um, what exactly is the mandate of the Intelligence Committee, please? Yeah, great, great question. And I loved your warm up because um, there's, there's actually a great deal more commonality uh, between the two committees than you might just think think off the top of your head. I mean, I can tell you my own personal experience. I've been on the committee now for some five, maybe six years. Um, and somehow I made it through uh, five decades of life, never regretting not being a lawyer. But when I got put on the Intelligence Committee, I, for the first time, largely around Fourth Amendment issues, uh, regretted not having legal training. Um, and and the, the reason for that, which I think gets to the answer to your question, um, is that, yes, of course, judiciary, the Judiciary Committee deals with the uh, the judicial branch writ large and, uh, you know, all of the things that are tangential to it. But when it comes to uh, questions of um, the overlap of intelligence 
and our constitutional rights and the law, that lives squarely in the Intelligence Committee. Uh, for, for jurisdictional reasons, but also for um, uh, for security reasons, the Intelligence Committee is um, days, deals day in and day out with issues of classification and being very, very careful with the nation's secrets. And so, for example, all of the issues that have to do with the authorities that were either promulgated by the FISA um, legislation or by the Patriot Act, these are things like um, 702 surveillance authorities, the famous 215 authorities, that was the metadata, um, those are uh, uh, overseen uh, on the Intelligence Committee. So that's where the, the overlap is most clear. When you have intelligence gathering, collection, and surveillance uh, that touch on uh, U.S. citizen equities. And it's confusing, I think, a little bit because we know that the FBI, the CIA, those come under the ambit of the Justice Department, right? And so it's easy to, I think, conflate, to, to sort of think that there's perfect overlap uh, between uh, intelligence gathering I- domestically and foreign and justice. You're saying they actually, there is overlap, but they actually also very much have their own disparate lanes when it comes to oversight, right? Yeah, that's 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 right. And there's, there's one easy way to think think of this that captures most examples. Um, You know, by and large, the FBI is a domestic law enforcement organization, uh, whereas the CIA and the NSA um, and other associated agencies like the DIA and NGA and all the three-letter agencies, by and large, point their activities um, exclusively abroad. They are foreign intelligence gathering organizations. Where it gets a little tricky is, of course, the FBI does counterterrorism. And when the FBI is doing counterterrorism, they will sometimes rely on their people uh, abroad who begin to do things that in some instances start to look a little bit like traditional intelligence gathering. Uh, and that's why we consider the FBI actually in that in that guise um, one of the intelligence community uh, uh, organizations. So what you hear in the background is the voting bells here in the Capitol. Um, the other way in which, of course, my example of is, you know, are things pointed outward or inward is I was I was talking about 702 authorities, right? That's a little little esoteric, a little technical. But when, for example, one of our intelligence agencies is collecting the emails of a, let's just say, a counterterrorism target abroad, every once in a while, that counterterrorism target may be uh, emailing with a U.S. citizen or a U.S. person. And if that happens, now all of a sudden, again, there are, you know, U.S. person constitutional uh, and legal questions at stake. So when I used to go around saying that the Mueller probe started its life as a counterintelligence probe, what I was trying to say, even though I didn't know it, is that the thing that I guess initially Jim Comey, later Bob Mueller, were worried about was more about what Russia had on the U.S. than what the U.S. was doing to itself, right? That's what gives birth to the Mueller probe? That's exactly right. And that grows out of the fact that counterintelligence is by and large an FBI um, pursuit. So, you know, when they worry that there is a Russian agent running around Washington, D.C. or New York or Los Angeles, it will be the FBI that uh, that is charged with finding that individual. So counterintelligence is by and large an FBI uh, activity. I say by and large because they will sometimes rely on the assistance of the intelligence community, people like CIA who may be able to fill out some of the blanks. But yeah, so so the reason the Mueller investigation has its origins in a counterintelligence investigation, and it's important to remember this because 
it's in the interests of the president's supporters to, to muddy this picture a little bit. But when Jim Comey announces that there has been for some time a counterintelligence investigation into um, Russian interference and the possibility of the Trump campaigns having uh, colluded with the Russian effort, this all has its origin in the famous story of the uh, Trump campaign staffer who has a little too much wine in Europe and at a table brags to a diplomat that he knows of an effort to gather dirt on the part of Russia to gather dirt on Hillary Clinton's campaign, lo and behold, said presumably slightly more sober diplomat, alerts somebody in the United States embassy. The FBI takes an interest because if you say, hey, Russia is trying to gather dirt on a U.S. presidential candidate, the FBI, of course, will take an interest in that. And that, of course, is what sets off the incredible series of events that ultimately lead to the Mueller report. And is that, Jim, the answer to the question that I've had since the Mueller report came down, which is the one thing about which Bob Mueller was 100 percent unequivocal in his report, the place where he was willing to go all the way, where he was not willing to go all the way in many, many areas. But he was willing to go all the way in saying Russia interfered with the election. They're doing it again. They're doing it again on a larger scale. So in some sense, this dovetails perfectly with what you just told me, which is this was his principal concern, too, right? More than any domestic wrongdoing and including and up to lawbreaking by the president, his concern was elections are being stolen and nobody cares. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I mean, the irony here is that the truly devastating stuff for the president, particularly for people of a legal frame of mind or a constitutional frame of mind, the truly devastating stuff in the Mueller report is in volume two. The obstruction of justice counts, right? Ten counts. Um, and again, it's a little esoteric. It's for people who you know, follow things like obstruction of justice. But the volume one details in, in real detail and real specificity this across the board effort on the part of the Russians uh, to attack our election. And it had and, and I mean, you know, there are indictments out there of people associated with the Internet Research Agency, you know, Putin's quote unquote chef and all these efforts that were made. Some of those efforts were, were, were online and had absolutely nothing to do with the Trump campaign. And of course, those were the efforts that were to penetrate the Democratic National Committee's servers and to, you know, get the, the dirt off of those servers of, you know, the evidence that could be used to suggest that the DNC was not an impartial actor. But it also included, and this is where it got sticky for the president, it, it included a lot of attempts to reach out to people on the Trump campaign um, and to see what would come from those relationships. And of course, the meeting in Trump Tower is probably the classic example when the president's son says, you know, sure, let's 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 see what the Russians have on uh, on Hillary Clinton. Probably not a wise moment for Don Donald Trump Jr. Um, and of course, famously, the conclusion in the end by by Bob Mueller is that um, that the activities, the interaction uh, between various Trump campaign people, not just Don Jr., but also people like Paul Manafort, did not rise to the level of a of a chargeable conspiracy. Okay, we got that. But then, of course, the really devastating stuff comes out of the effort of the president to stop that investigation. That leads to volume two and the 10 counts of obstruction. And now back to our conversation with Congressman Jim Himes of the House Intelligence Committee, who is helping me pick through, well, the spy stuff and also the constitutional stuff of impeachment. So, so, Jim, one of the revelations that came at the end of last week and maybe didn't get quite as much attention as it, I think, ought to have received was 
hearing, I guess, on Thursday that the Bar Justice Department had begun to, quote, investigate the investigators, which is just to say that what was initiated as an administrative inquiry through uh, the U.S. attorney, John Durham, in Connecticut into the origins of the Russia probe suddenly had become perhaps a criminal probe and that what was chasing down this Donald Trump fantasy that he was being spied on and that the deep state was out to get him now may result in what criminal charges for Jim Comey for Andrew McCabe Uh, is this an attempt it feels like an attempt to in the effort to chase around Donald Trump's conspiracy theories about his enemy strike a real blow at the heart of the intelligence apparatus and a, and a blow that would have lingering effects. Yeah, you know, if you're an overseer, as I am, it, it's it's horrifying um, because um, the president and the attorney general, certainly the president, but largely the attorney general, have sort of lost their standing as impartial. Um, you know, we know what the president does, and that's, of course, why we're in impeachment and inquiry right now. But, you know, William Barr, the attorney general, has also demonstrated time and time again that he views his role as much about defending the president as he as he regards his traditional role as attorney general of overseeing uh, domestic law enforcement. And so um, it, it's it's horrifying because, um, in my opinion, the attorney general is doing this to appease the president who has a wacky conspiracy theory and not just one, but many that there is this deep state arrayed against him uh, that had an insurance policy. And I mean, I could go on and on with all of the traditional, you know, Fox News, crazy conspiracy theories, including servers in Ukraine. Much of this stuff has been debunked. Um, And at best, and and the the best case scenario is, is not a good one. It's one where you know, CIA officers and um, FBI uh, uh, agents are in some sense self-censoring, right? Like, well, I've got this lead that has a political implication, but I'm going to bury it because, my God, there's such downside associated with getting involved in anything that smacks uh, of, of, of politics. And so, you know, on the one hand, that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, the entire uh Law enforcement apparatus uh, may be being used in an attempt to buttress this president's deep state theories. And and quite frankly, that's the stuff that smacks of, you know, banana republics in contrast to what we think of as 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 the United States. And, you know, I should add, Dahlia, it's not, you know, some of this stuff is rooted in the possibility of legitimate review. So. If you go back to the fact that Carter Page was subject to a FISA surveillance order by a judge that was renewed a number of times, in their saner moments, some of the defenders of the president will say, well, the folks who presented to that FISA judge didn't adequately explain the source of the Steele memorandum. Um, Now, the Steele Memorandum, as you know, is a big bunch of, you know, raw intelligence, some undoubtedly true, some undoubtedly false. And that's actually a legitimate question to ask. You know, did the process work or, in fact, was Carter Page, you know, if you, it, with the benefit of hindsight, would you perhaps not have uh, allowed a continuation of the uh, of the FISA warrant? That's that's legitimate. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the part of a complicit uh, is, is a complicit attorney general 
uh, by all accounts, um, wandering around the world trying to gather information or, 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 or data that would buttress these wild deep state out to get Donald Trump conspiracy theories. And, and by the way, if you'll allow me one more 30 second block of, of speechifying here, let's remember what actually happened in, with respect to the deep state. Uh, there is an argument to be made that Jim Comey, as director of the FBI, breaks with protocol and precedent and not once but twice announces an investigation into the Democratic candidate for president, Hillary Rodham Clinton, including the second announcement right before the election. I mean, again, if you were a Martian who landed on Earth and said, you know, who was the deep state helping here? Uh, the answer would not be they were helping Hillary Clinton. The follow on to everything you've just said and, and what you've said is a little bit frightening. But then we have, uh, as you say, Attorney General Bill Barr, who who appears to be all in on this deep state theory and to be really helping push the narrative that, you know, the FBI is this hotbed of corruption and that criminal charges are going to need to be brought against the folks who had anything to do with the beginnings of the Mueller probe. And here he is speaking to Fox News on Monday and saying that he's actually connecting John Durham with countries, with foreign countries that have information on the people that Durham is uh, now investigating. So he's now going beyond just bolstering these claims that everybody who was uh, in Comey's FBI who wasn't supporting Donald Trump uh, by quashing uh, this investigation is somehow a, a deep state malfactor. But now he's actually helping foreign countries to gather intel on American intelligence apparatus. I, I mean, it does feel, I don't know. Really, really, really creepy, Jim. It is really creepy. And, and I mean, we need to remember that, that Bill Barr, sadly, for a guy who had a reputation in Washington, um, um, has identified himself very much as a bad actor here. And I point to two facts that, that caused me to say that. Number one, he, before the Mueller report is released, writes a memorandum that is made public that is so skewed that Bob Mueller, a man of few words and, and of very limited interventions in the course of history, writes a letter saying, basically, you misconstrued my report. So there's the attorney general pre-spinning the Mueller report. The second thing he did, which really resonated with me, and he continues to do this, is he continues to use the president's language of the deep state spying on him. Um, that is right out of the right wing, crazy conspiracy theory playbooks. If he were a decent actor, he might say, look, is it possible that there was inappropriate surveillance of one of Donald Trump's minor campaign aides? I'm referring here, of course, to Carter Page. That would be the responsible way to put it. But when he uses the word spying, which is both an incorrect use of the word and, and it's a word, of course, that points right at the fever swamp conspiracy theories. He's taken himself out of any semblance of impartiality in this thing. And he's really playing with fire here because my bet is that all of this running around the world and all of these reports um, are going to uncover, surprise, surprise, no deep, deep state conspiracy theory. But this has an impact on the bureaucracy. I mean, there are people who are working in all of these bureaucracies who are terrified about making a misstep um, that could be misinterpreted. And so the, in, in many cases, the damage uh, of Bill Barr's uh, uh, complete 
uh, selling out to the defense of the president has to some extent been done. On this show, so much time is devoted to what it means when you break the Justice Department, what it means when you break the courts, the, the fundamentally nihilist project of undermining public confidence in institutions that utterly rely on public confidence. And you've just added the piece of the puzzle that I have been struggling with, which is what happens when you undermine public confidence in the FBI and the CIA and uh, the intelligence apparatus of the country. And over and above that, you're saying they actually can't do their jobs if they are chilled from zealously doing the work they have to do because of this kind of dark cloak of politicization, which is really the thing that the Justice Department has striven, I think, to avoid. I would point out to something that I think we all feel, even, even if we don't think about it a lot, even the president's defenders have some version of, oh, don't pay attention to him on this topic. You know, uh, you know, if it, I, I think most of the president's defenders would say not every tweet is meant to be taken literally. So when the president trashes the CIA or the intelligence community or the FBI, um, you know, we've built up a little bit of an immune system. But when the actual bureaucracies themselves, the, the storied Department of Justice, you know, the FBI itself, when they get wrapped up in this effort, it's not just a, you know, another gaseous emanation from the Oval Office on Twitter. It's a really scary thing. And, and you know, people who understand the history of these agencies, let's let's say the you know, the post Hoover uh, tradition of the uh, of the FBI or the storied history of the Department of Justice, when they hear uh, that the attorney general is are, is using these bureaucratic mechanisms in the chase of the president's fever dreams, it's a terrifying moment. And, and can you just to put the cherry on top? Because I think one of the reasons that the Foreign Emoluments Clause exists, the campaign finance laws uh, that preclude foreign interference in campaigns, uh, other laws that uh, the House is investigating, this isn't just about domestic lawbreaking. It's about national autonomy. It's about the deep fear the framers had that foreign entities were going to buy elections, use political influence to uh, kind of commandeer uh, American autonomous decision making. And so just to get back to our initial conversation about counterintelligence, I think we get, again, very, very focused on domestic law breaking. But there is a constitutional part of this story that is the framers weren't just worried about lawbreaking. They were worried about foreign powers inserting themselves into American affairs. That's one of the things you're trying to figure out, too. And I think that that question has two parts. We've talked about part one, which is what were the Russians actually doing? Or in this last election, it would appear that maybe the Iranians were active. You know, what what can foreign powers do that they couldn't do before because we all live in this networked world? The other piece that is probably the subject of a whole other lengthy conversation is what happens in a free society when foreign bad actors get to contribute to the conversation? Contribute not being quite the right word. But, you know, as I said, I had an opportunity to ask Mark Zuckerberg a few questions in my other committee last week. And, you know, what what does it do to us when um, at the push of a button in St. Petersburg, all kinds of visual imagery can pop up on tens of thousands of screens all over the United States 
that might involve uh, race baiting or, you know, one of the things that still sticks with me is I saw a Twitter ad that had been bought by the Russians that was in Spanish and it showed a lovely, presumably Latino family. And in Spanish, this ad said, hey, you don't need to go down to the voting booth to vote. All you need to do if you want to vote for Hillary Clinton is dial this number. And, you know, I don't know that we have any idea of how many presumably Latinos thought they were voting for Hillary Clinton and dialed that number. And so, yes, there is the question of direct influence that, that I think the founding fathers were, were, were very, very worried about. Um, but then there's also the question in this highly networked world of what does it mean in an open society where, where malefactors get to, in a very big way, contribute to, to our national civic dialogue, contribute again, being the wrong word. But get to sort of bastardize our our our, our civic conversation. And, and I want to just ask you two quick questions about Skiffgate. Um, again, it's a little counterintuitive that you know it looks like this big stunt, right? And there are Republicans who are not on the relevant committees being denied access to a skiff, which is standard. There are other Republicans who are uh, you know evaluating, questioning witnesses, seeing evidence. So it's looks like it's all a big joke. But can you just explain to us, just from your Intel goggles, why it is that some of this stuff has to be kept secret? We know why Skiffgate is happening here, right? It, it is telling that none of the critics of the impeachment inquiry are engaging on the substance here. Like, should the president be asking for a favor of a brand new foreign president? So instead, they're engaging on process. And so, um, as you know, inside the Skiff, Republican and Democratic members of three committees have the right to sit and listen, because those are the committees that are actually undertaking the inquiry. Now, the reason that these, um, these uh, depositions are happening by clo- behind closed doors, I would answer with uh, the opinion of one Trey Gowdy, who, as you know, is sort of the lead uh, inquisitor on Benghazi, who in a famous quote said, hey, you can get an awful lot more out of a closed deposition in which people aren't playing for the cameras, in which counsel can do the questioning and the you know, rather uh, self-satisfied members don't feel the need to play to the camera, um, you can get an awful lot more done. That's, that's one reason. Another reason is that particularly when you have people who may have been working together, and I'm of course referring famously to the, to the now famous Three Amigos, Um, You would like to get testimony without people having the benefit of coordinating their their stories. And then lastly, when you're dealing with ambassadors and by and large, we've been dealing with ambassadors. These are people who have um, uh, access to lots of classified information. And so if you really want an open give and take, you want a venue in which, though they may try not to offer up classified information where they can speak freely without worrying about doing that. So what's happening right now is happening behind closed doors the way any grand jury or any other investigation would happen, which of course is why the Republican critique falls down. And all of the process that they are demanding will in fact be layered in um, once we get out of the investigative phase. So as you know better than me, if there is ultimately a trial in the Senate, there will be prosecutors in defense. There will be a judge, uh, the, 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 the Supreme Court Chief Justice. Uh, there will be an opportunity for the president's lawyers to cross-examine, et cetera, et cetera. But this all boils down to um, desperately trying not to engage on what is pretty devastating substance, but instead trying to cast doubt on the fairness of the process. 
And, and I just have to ask you, the flip of, of Skiffgate is after Sunday's successful execution of al-Baghdadi, head of ISIS, the president, I guess, tells Russia that this happens, but not the Intelligence Committee, not Pelosi. And so then there's this, this mirror image of what you've just been talking about, which is in some instances there is a need for secrecy. In some instances, uh, the president keeping something secret from uh, the relevant uh, uh, intelligence uh, uh, committee chiefs seems different. And I and I guess I'm just driving inchoately, Jim, at this question about it seems that now secrets are not to protect the country. Secrets are to protect the party. Uh, and that uh, seems also like a very, very uh, dispiriting new turn. I would distinguish the question of what the president decides to tell the congressional leadership from everything else that we've just talked about here. There has always been a push and pull between um, the president and the executive branch generally doing things and they're telling Congress about it. And, you know, all the things like the FISA court and, uh, you know, the arrangement that exists for a gang of eight where only the leadership of Congress is briefed come out of that tension. Um, I, I think we have such other bigger fish to fry that I'm not too freaked out by the failure to tell the congressional leaders. Um, I will point out that that's not a good trend. And I will also point out that there is there is something very wise about involving the congressional leadership because it appears that this raid went right. But when it goes wrong, you really would like to have had the benefit of some enormously experienced people. I mean, take Nancy Pelosi's party hat off. Um, she's been working in or around intelligence for 30 years. I mean, famously a long-term member of the Intelligence Committee. And there's just virtue, I think, in having people who've been uh, around uh, this kind of thing for a long period of time. Uh, you know, as they say, if you're if you're not there at the takeoff, don't expect them to be there at the landing. And and at this case, in, in this case, it went right. But you know, it's a better process if the president relies on the good counsel of uh, of a bipartisan group of leaders prior to doing something like this. Uh, can I ask you one last question that you're not going to like? Of course. Okay. Um, Charles Kupperman served as deputy to former National Security Advisor John Bolton, did not show up on Monday uh, despite a congressional subpoena and a warning that a failure to appear could result in a contempt citation. You know it's coming. What are you going to do? What's what's is tiny jail for him? Um, huge stiff fines. <laughs> well, you know the traditional remedy for uh, you know failure to appear before Congress or contempt of Congress has been to ask the just Justice Department to do something about it uh, or to go to a judge to enforce an order. Um, and so, yeah, we're at a weird impasse here. And when you talk about tiny jail, what you're talking about is the long disused. And boy, is this the topic for a podcast at some point? The long disused teapot dome is the last time no. They, yes, right. I know it. Yeah, yeah. So there's much discussion. And I mean, I think in the 21st century, people say we're not going to actually reopen the tiny jail. But, you know, presumably a fine of, you know, 25,000 a day for noncompliance might it might might get the attention of uh, of people who otherwise might uh, uh, might uh, ignore the Congress. But, you know, it, it points to a much larger issue, which is that, you know, the president does have some right to. Uh, privacy in discussions with his advisors. And that, that of course, is where you get executive privilege. Um, but it cannot be used for blanket things. And it needs to be very, very pointed and specific. And so Kupperman should have shown up. Um, you know, he's defying a congressional subpoena right now, which is very serious business. He should have shown up and he should have required the White House um, to detail precisely what their claims were of privilege around specific topics. 
Um, if we don't have a world like that, if we have the world that we're living in today, we are on the way to doing away with the traditional checks and balances in our system. A lot of listeners who want to know what they should be paying attention to, how to triage the news, uh, how, what is wheat and what is chaff. What's your what's your best advice to folks on what to pay attention to, what to focus on? Um, I know that you know so much of the the battle cry right now is don't be distracted, but of course all the distractions are distractions from other distractions. It's hard to center uh, what is the most important thing? What is the most important thing we should be watching in the coming weeks? Look, what what happens in the Congress is not terribly unpredictable. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that, that nothing is certain in this world, but it is almost certain that there will be articles voted on in the House and the president will be impeached in the House of Representatives. There will be a trial in the Senate and the Senate will not, will not convict Donald Trump. Okay. That I think is 95% probable to occur. So for those people who are, you know, politically opposed to this president, the moment of accountability is the November 2020 election. And people should think about what that means to them and what they're willing to do along those political lines. There's another interesting question, which is how do we go about rebuilding the norms and the conventions and the institutions that have really taken a beating uh, in these last three years? Um, to some extent, there's a, a, an interesting kind of legal slash technical conversation about how do we make explicit what exactly the bounds are of executive privilege and how do we get away from the Trump administration's belief that if you worked for the campaign at some point and you never worked for the White House, nonetheless, you are you are sort of not testifying in Congress because of executive privilege. That's obviously insane. We need to make explicit what those things mean, the, the classic sort of, you know, taking norms and making them explicit. The other thing that people need to start thinking about is that a lot of the crazy that we're all suffering these days comes from a profoundly polarized citizenry. And I sometimes have to remind my Democratic colleagues and Democratic supporters who are in full, you know, activation mode that, yes, by all means, let's win. I think it's existential for the democracy that we win in November of 2020. But let's also spare a thought to what we do and say to get us to a place that we can start restitching the civic dialogue in this country and move it away from the almost violent tribalism, the black and white Manichaean framing of our politics today to a calmer, more open, more humble politics. Because frankly, we don't survive in the long run if we are fully tribal and Manichaean. We survive because there is flow of ideas and people change their minds and they're a little bit humble about their political opinions. So I think that's a great undiscussed project for hopefully um, the very near future. Jim Himes represents Connecticut's 4th District in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he is serving his sixth term. And he sits on many, many committees, but for our purposes, the Intelligence Committee. And uh, I will follow your restitching wherever it takes us, Jim. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this special bonus episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. And you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We have been getting so much mail. We appreciate it. We really love the feedback. 
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. And we will be back with another episode of Amicus in about 10 days. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.